Brian Stanton here with ASEP Frontline, joined today by Dr. Brian Fingler, founder and CEO of Evidence Care, and we are going to talk today about evidence-based learning uh, and information, um, and something that's been really getting a lot of fuel over the last number of years. There's always been research in medicine, and the issue we've had up until the most recent decade or so has been that evidence was accrued over time, evolved, matured. It was like a fine wine and it made it to the practice of medicine after about 10 years. And often in books, of course, what we studied, we're talking about stuff that was 10 to 20 years old. And now with modern aspects of things, we have a double-edged sword of being able to get evidence, you know, almost from the moment it's published or in many cases before it's actually published. But then come to find out though that it hasn't been thoroughly vetted. There's issues uh, with the studies and, and with the methodologies and of course then you throw on top of that the potential of, of evidence that is being collected uh, by those with an agenda and thus skewing the data. You know the best examples recently have been things such as the uh, opioids where for 10 to 15 years, 15, 20 years we were told by Purdue Pharmaceuticals that um, that OxyContin had minimal addiction potential and thus we should hand it out like candy to help people be pain-free and now we see where we have gotten with that. Um, the evidence associated with, uh, with vaccinations and autism being one that was retracted but still resonates even today, especially with the lay public. So we wanted to talk about the evidence of medicine and where we are and some of the resources that uh, Dr. Fingler and his team have created in order to um, help guide us through the treacherous waters of evidence-based learning in an era where we have no shortage of information, but do have shortages of context and, um, and proper vetting, I think, in many cases. So, Dr. Fingler, thank you, uh, thank you for joining us and tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. It's uh, it's a pleasure to uh, to be able to talk with you and um, share with the audience a little more about evidence care. Uh, I am a emergency physician from Nashville. Um, I didn't grow up here. I grew up uh, up in upstate New York, uh, but I've been in Nashville for about ten years and uh, absolutely love it. And uh, it's been a a great uh, place to to have a healthcare IT company and to grow that company. And uh, it's uh, afforded lots of opportunities. You know, interestingly, I see that, you know, with the advancement in technologies, many more physicians are getting into the solutions necessary for our job. And I think emergency physicians are uh, acutely capable and interested in these areas and, in, and things outside of medicine. If you look at some of the great, um, great technologies out there, emergency medicine is often at the forefront and I like the, the quote on the main page that says, that says patients expect their provider to get the answer right every time. And the mm -hmm. issue is with that is we don't always have the right information to get the right answer. So give us some right. of these challenges with the modern technology, the advancements in the way that we do things on evidence-based medicine, how it's developed, how it's advancing, and the challenges we face in modern practice. Yeah, you know, I think part of the challenge is that, uh, and you've already mentioned it, but uh, evidence-based medicine is evolving so quickly, um, and so it, it is impossible for any provider to keep up with all of that evidence. Um, and then you have all of the challenges of a provider's workflow. Um, you know, the fact that 
52% of our day has been taken away by the EHR. Um, and now we're at the point where we only have 27% of our day that's allocated to actually be able to interact with patients. So now we're in a situation where when providers have a clinical question about what is the optimal management of this particular patient, they simply don't have the time to actually go and access resources that are, um, you know, in their current state um, because we don't have another minute uh, to our day to, to be able to add to, uh, to all the challenges of what we're managing. Uh, you know, looking at the basis for this, for your story, and I'll get to the story about how it all came about it here in a few minutes, but, you know, thinking about it, I think one of the challenges we see, and I tell when I educate, you know, some of the differences in practice, and one of the challenges of medicine is many people do not evolve with time, or I think it's slow down, slow down as things advance. Their practice doesn't advance at the same vigor that the information evidence, and the challenge being that often once evidence is thoroughly uh, thoroughly vetted and put on a broader scheme with large enough studies, we find that results are not accurate or, or that um, it's a different findings and trying to figure out where things really are. As, as in medical school, I was told by the time you finish medicine, uh, by the time you retire, 50% of your practice will be considered malpractice. Um, just it, Unfortunately, we just don't know which 50% yet. And that's where we are with the evidence. But I find that with the different generations of practice and now with emergency medicine, we're getting into the fact that we have a full breadth of full-time practicing emergency physicians, meaning people who started their careers and are now getting close to the end of their careers in emergency medicine alone. Their practice, if they haven't kept up to date, is very different from the newer practices approaches coming out and different from those in the middle of the careers. And not to say that necessarily one is better than the other. There's things that I think have been lost with some of the newer graduates, but they do tend to have more up-to-date information that's available and that can be challenging for patients, not knowing, you know, exactly which course. It can cause confusion. It can cause changes and lapses in treatments and approaches uh, to that treatment. And so, you know, having a source or a place where you can find that information and get the most up-to-date stuff in a, in a time, type of fashion that, uh, that is amenable to our type of workflow is, uh, is integral. So, with that said, how did you come up or where did the idea for evidence care come from? All right. Hold up for a minute. Here is an issue that we had. We recorded this over the phone and we have a central recording and I typically record my side and the sound is good um, with the audio aspect of things with the microphone. Unfortunately, somebody called me, which turned off my recording. And that's why the first part of this interview has me sounding like I'm on the phone as well. The good news is on the rest of this, you get the decent sound quality. And so you will get a little bit and notice a little bit of change. All right, let's get back to it. Yeah. So uh, when I was an intern at the University of Virginia, uh, one of my good friends and colleagues was a second year and uh, had a patient present, a um, man in his 40s, um, had a massive pulmonary embolism, um, was hypoxic, was hypotensive. And, uh, and, and met all criteria to receive lytics. Um, and so my colleague was, you know, current on the literature, knew this provider, uh, this patient uh, met criteria, was about to give Alteplase when the ICU team arrived in the emergency department 
and a little argument actually ensued between my colleague and the ICU fellow over the indications for lytics uh, in, in patients with PE. And this argument actually ended with the ICU fellow pushing the stretcher out of the emergency department and saying, well, this patient's ours now, you know, we'll take care of him from here. And unfortunately, that patient died five hours later in the ICU. Um, and they gave him lytics, but they gave him lytics 30 minutes into his CPR um, at a time when it was already too late. Uh, and so this ended up actually becoming a big case at the University of Virginia. And I actually ended up getting selected to present the m and to the whole hospital. Uh, that kind of piqued my interest in pulmonary embolism. I ended up doing a year of research on pulmonary embolism and ended up publishing a protocol in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine for how emergency physicians should be risk stratifying patients with pulmonary embolism and making that decision to give lytics or not ourselves in the emergency department. Um, and so finished residency and moved to Nashville and I joined a, a, a community uh, practice group in Nashville. And, and I'm now, you know, find myself the, the PE guru of the group who every day colleagues are coming up to me asking me how they should manage their patients with PE and uh, about seven years ago, uh, a 30-year-old woman presented to one of the hospitals here in Nashville with a massive blood clot, um, very sick, in shock. Um, and I knew that if, that if I didn't give her lytics, that, that she was going to decompensate very quickly. Um, the challenge is this, this 30-year-old woman, who was previously perfectly healthy, uh, was also 36 weeks pregnant. And so... Here I am, quote, an expert on pulmonary embolism, um, up current with the literature, you know, as much as anybody could expect to be, uh, and I still was not sure what the risk to her unborn child was in giving her lytics. Uh, and so I did, as any good physician would do, I asked the nurse to go pull tenecteplates from the Pixis while I ran back to, the, to my computer and started searching on Google for what happens when you give a pregnant woman lytics? And, you know, you've been there. You can't find that information fast enough. Um, I'm spending a few minutes trying to look for this. Meanwhile, the nurse is calling me from the trauma bay saying, Dr. Fengler, her blood pressure is dropping more. What do you want us to do? And so I go into the room and I made the decision, okay, I need to give her lytics. Um, and I go up to the bedside and I say, ma'am, you know, you're, you're very sick because you have a large blood clot sitting between your heart and your lungs. I'm going to give you this medicine to try to, to break up that clot. And she looks up at me and she says, what's the risk to my baby? And I said, I don't know, but if we don't save your life, then your baby's going to die also. And so that situation, you know, that patient encounter stuck with me for a while. And it sort of got my brain thinking around why is it that in the, quote, information age and in an era where we spend uh, all that we do on healthcare IT, do providers still not have the tools at the bedside to actually help them determine what's the specifically correct care for each patient um, through a range of conditions? You know, obviously, that example is a critical situation, you know, high stakes uh, with her being pregnant, but we're making these decisions every day. You know, what antibiotics to give somebody with cellulitis, what meds to treat somebody who's a diabetic who has gout, um, whether or not we're going to get a head scan on a kid who comes in with a head injury. You know, all of these decisions are important to the patient, 
And we do not have the tools at our fingertips to help us drive those better decisions. Um, and, and that's been my whole mission with Evidence Care. So we're looking at uh, basically what you're discussing here, the clinical decision support tools. And I mean, they're integral in emergency medicine just because we have 100% of medicine that could present at any given moment. And and so the, the, the chances of us, I mean, it's nearly impossible. I, I don't know anybody truly that could actually mentally hold all of emergency medicine in the brain you know so it's going to be integral and that is and you're you're exactly right with these little caveats you know a little twist to the story that makes it to where the patient falls out of the typical treatment guidelines or algorithms and i think most of us know many of the algorithms for the traditional presentations but not only having that little caveat so the pregnant uh, female um, as opposed to traditional pe type uh, patients um, and then also integrating that new research or where things uh, have developed. So give me more information on how these, uh, you know, the clinical dis- decision support, how it's been used in the past um, and how you feel like we're going to be using these clinical decision support tools in the future. You know, there's um, there's a lot of folks out there that are in the realm of clinical decision support and and. At, at the periphery, it seems like it's a pretty crowded space. Um, but the reality is when you start kind of diving in, you start looking at, you know, well, what do these products actually do? You know, you start to realize that nine out of 10, you know, products that have the name clinical decision support on them are, are really just, you know, badges that their marketing folks have put on them. Um, and, you know, I won't mention specific names, but everybody knows, you know, sort of the encyclopedic approach to clinical decision support, um, which is good when you need the encyclopedia of medicine uh, or if you're a medical student who needs bedtime reading. But, you know, when you're actually at the point of care making decisions that are going to drive, you know, your, your clinical decision making and your orders, you know, you, you don't want to be accessing the encyclopedia of medicine. Um, you want to be accessing something that's specific to the patient that's sitting in front of you uh, and allows you to um, execute that very quickly. And so my, you know, my whole vision for this has changed dramatically over the last seven years. Um, I think my first vision of this was to bring patient-focused evidence-based medicine to the bedside. But as I started building that first version of it, um, I sort of started realizing that what I had built was not really a clinical decision support tool. It was a point of care reference tool. Um, and we started learning more from the, you know, the, the healthcare organizations we've interacted with and our collaboration with EHR vendors. We started learning that ultimately evidence care is going to be successful, not if it's just the point of care reference tool, but if it's actually a clinical workflow tool. Because what we need to do is we need to bring evidence to the bedside, but we need to do it in a way that actually enhances or accelerates the provider's workflow to use that to help drive your clinical documentation, to help drive your order entry so that you get value from your interaction with our tool. Um, And it's not that you had to go and do something extra and then go back into your EHR and spend 10 minutes typing up your note and doing all your orders. Um, that it's actually embedded in the EHR, and it's actually driving all of that for you. Um, that's where I see the next uh, phase of evidence care evolving to um, and, and, and where ultimately our, our success is going to lie. One of the biggest weaknesses I have seen with um, things we've had in the past and other options out there 
this is twofold. One, it either doesn't have enough information in terms of, you know, it just goes with the basic common case presentation, you know, the easy stuff relatively. And then, you know, the outliers are what you're sitting there digging for, the weird, the weird little caveats. Or just like you mentioned, the, the encyclopedic type breakdown where there is no easy answer in there, but it is a really good read and a lot of great information and kind of puts it all together, um, but doesn't necessarily um, allow you to use it in real time. Um, what are the unique aspects of emergency medicine and the way you felt like we, you need to approach it in order to allow this to be a functional real-time tool in emergency medicine? Yeah, I mean, emergency medicine um, is, is, you know, obviously the, the, the most critical specialty in regards to what you've already mentioned. You know, we have to cover the whole breadth of medicine, um, but we also cover it at its most acute phase. Um, and so time is of our essence, and um, we don't have an extra moment um, to, to have to do something extra, to have to do something that fits outside of our workflow. Um, and we always have to be prepared for anything. You know, uh, you could be taking care of 10 patients um, with, with very, very different, you know, presentations of uh, zebras, if you will. Um, and, and you have to be prepared for that. And you have to be able to um, determine what the right care is for that patient, um, communicate that with the patient so the patient actually understands, you know, why you're doing certain tests, why you're not doing other certain things that they might have come in with the expectations that we should have, should be doing. Um, and so it, it really is the most critical care setting um, for, for the need for decision support. Um, and, and that's why, I mean, ultimately, that's why I went into emergency medicine, because I love that. And, and I love that, uh, um, you know, that, uh, that high stakes nature to it. Um, but, but ultimately, it, it also is all about being there at the point in time when our patients need us the most and we can have the biggest impact on their lives. Interestingly, emergency medicine is like the practice manifestation of the high yield books we used to have in medical school. I assume, I, I assume they're still floating around, but like the high yield, which is just this really quick to the point blurbs and things. And that's really what we need in terms of an era where we are busier than ever and yet there's more information than ever, and yet less time to actually process um, that information. How how is it all laid out um, with your program and your approach? How do you lay it out in terms of being able to get to that thirty-year-old pregnant female with unstable saddle pulmonary embolism sitting in front of your emergency department? Um, well, so the, the approach that we've taken, uh, and at least initially, was uh, we looked at emergency medicine. And we identified 16 protocols that covered 80% of admissions to the hospital through the ER. Um, and so, and, and these are, are, you know, do happen to be the most critical conditions in not only emergency medicine, but medicine in general. You know, so things like sepsis and stroke and heart attack and pulmonary embolism and pneumonia. Uh, and, and for each of those protocols, we went out and got a leading expert nationally on that condition you know so peter w for sepsis and jeff klein for pulmonary embolism and uh mike winters for acls and, and on and on uh, and we did that because we wanted when folks came in to access our tool we wanted the tool to have immediate credibility um to dovetail on that you know we we've now gone and partnered with medical societies so we've partnered with asep 
um, and we partnered with AAEM. Um, we're partnering with medical societies outside of emergency medicine and, you know, gastro and ortho and pediatrics and family practice. Because ultimately, we see evidence care as a tool that, you know, while we started in emergency medicine, is applicable across all care settings. And all care settings have the same challenge of, you know, compromised workflow, um, needing to deliver, you know, evidence-based medicine to each particular patient, um, the need to drive clinical documentation, the need to communicate with patients when you need to make um, shared decisions. Um, and so, you know, we're slowly starting to branch off into other specialties um, and, and just build up our content library. Um, and, and part of our mission is um, it was more uh, as we built the company and we built the product, it was more initially about the products than the content because we wanted to create a content management engine that would be able to self-sustain itself. And we're, we're almost there, but being at the point where providers can actually come in and um, customize the protocols to themselves, organizations can customize the content, um, providers can come in and leave feedback and, and actually have that you know, uh, inform the system uh, that we could pull data out of the EHRs on patient outcomes that have, been, that have used the protocols and have that to drive prospective data that gets presented to the user on, yes, it's one thing to know that, you know, this study that looked at 200 patients 10 years ago says that we should treat patients this way, um, but, but here's the data on actually prospectively treated thousands of patients um, using this protocol and this approach. Um, there's some really exciting things that we're building into the application, which are going to be um, really fun going forward. You know, these types of things, programs like this, and then uh, one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to is Ken Milne's uh, Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. And, you know, I love, and you talked about the people that you have that have put those together. And I think that's one of the big things because I personally look at a lot of these topics. I have a hard time paring down the quality of studies and the findings and what does it really mean and how do you read into this and how do I, is it generalizable? Can I apply it to my practice setting? And so having these folks that can take all of that, boil it down for us to here's the bullet points, here's the take home points that you need, um, here's what it really says, and then being able to ingest or digest that aspect of it as opposed to trying to work through everything. And that's been a huge evolution in medicine in general, but especially emergency medicine over the last few years, is having the experts' experts break it down for you and put get into little bite-sized chunks that you can actually then apply uh, to your practice. That's why it's important to say, hey, here, look at this study that shows this. Ignore it because it's crap. Uh, and this is why. And that's, I think, a lot of us, you know, on the front line, emergency docs kind of folks, have a hard time with some of that types of things because I'm not a researcher personally and I've never been interested in it. I don't like research, um, but I love reading research and knowing how it's going to change uh, change my practice. Now, one thing you did mention a few minutes ago was you know pulling that data and information from the EHR. And I know EHRs are a touchy topic. They make our lives more difficult in many cases, but I do see down the road our EHR becoming a tool that's going to be a significant ally in our practice as opposed to now what what it is in many cases which is for the bean counters lawyers and data gatherers um how do you uh, how is uh, evidence care being uh 
what role does it have with our EHR and how can it integrate with our ER and EHR and is, is that on the way or is it happening? Yeah, it, it is on the way. And, um, you know, when I, a couple of years ago, when we first started um, into the conversation about integrating evidence care into EHRs, um, I, I was, I was hesitant. Um, and, and I, I had concerns that, um, you know, by, starting to interact and engage with the EHR vendors that I was going to be somehow sharing with them some secret sauce that they were going to go and steal and do themselves. Um, and I actually have a much different perception of EHR companies now than I did a few years ago. Um, we've met with all major EHR vendors. Um, we're engaged with all of them. Um, and I actually have a greater appreciation for each of them right now than I did two years ago because on the other side of that table at each of these companies are people who want to build the best product, want their clients to have the best experience on it and, and want to help them deliver better care. Um, the problem is it's really hard <laughs> making, making something really easy is extremely difficult. Um, and, and, and I understand that through the perspective of what we've been building with evidence care. And I also understand that through the perspective of the EHR vendors and, you know, they share the, the challenge. They have challenges themselves you know, and they've been mandated by the government to, to do certain things. Um, and that's where a lot of their focus has been. And they've been, you know, they go into a new hospital, you know, if they disrupt that hospital's revenue cycle, that's, you know, going to cost the hospital hundreds of millions of dollars. And so they have a lot of focus there. Um, but, but I think that we are on sort of the start of the new era of usability of EHRs and bringing clinical decision support into the EHRs. And I think the challenge is that all EHR vendors will admit if you get them in a closed room is that they don't know how to approach clinical decision support either because they are installed at thousands of hospitals with providers in dozens of different specialties with evidence that's constantly evolving in each of those specialties. And they don't have the bandwidth themselves to keep up with all of that evidence. Um, and so in a way, they are looking now for third-party vendors to be able to integrate, to be able to offload some of that core competency in terms of content management. Um, and that's where our approach has been, hey, let's work with the medical societies, let's source the best content, and then let's integrate that with the EHRs. And when new studies come out, new guidelines come out, you know, we can update that in our application in weeks or months as opposed to one of these EHR vendors having to go and rewrite order sets, which takes years. Um, and so I think the EHR vendors have been uh, receptive. Um, some of them are moving faster to that model than others. Um, but I think at the end of the day, that's where we're all of it is going to be um, in that the EHR vendors serving as the data repository um, and the source of truth um, and the, um, other applications coming in to solve some of those, um, you know, additional needs of providers such as clinical decision support. I remember talking with Dr. Brian Fingler with uh, Evidence Care. Um, interesting as we evolve in emergency medicine and medicine in general, how, you know, we have these uh, physicians and groups and that have these talents and kind of roll out and do these solutions that will benefit us all, you know, down the road. I mean, we've got, got all kinds of things out there that are going to uh, benefit us, whether it's, you know, the calculators or whether it's other sources of information or uh, foam, you know, the foam ed in terms of podcasting information. I mean, it really is so much 
intense uh, information and keeping up to speed and the constantly shifting soils of um, ideal medical practice um, is really impressive. How can, uh, where is uh, Evidence Care, how can people find it and uh, get more information about it? Yeah, so um, easiest is uh, just go right to our website um, and it's um, app.evidence.care. Um, they can actually sign up for an account for free. Um, it's, it's free for everybody. Um, you know, if uh, we do have a subscription version that they can get CME credits while they use protocols, and those, um, those CME credits are actually accredited by ASEP. Um, and we're working with ASEP right now to have those uh, ultimately feed back into uh, ASEP CME tracker. Um, and then we're also, you know, starting to engage with uh, with hospital systems um, that that are looking to wanting to uh, embed us into their EHR and allow all the providers within their organization to access us uh, from from directly within their their EHR workflow. So evidence care, it is app, like the app on your phone. Dot evidence. Dot care, um, as you mentioned, a free service um, that you can get there unless you want some CME with it, and then you can throw a few bills and, and get your CME with it as, as well. How, and if people have any questions uh, for you, how they can get more involved, um, you know, how does there a way that uh, folks can contact you either via email, uh, phone, passenger pigeon, or social media? Um, yeah, so I am Brian at evidence.care, um, and I would be happy to talk with folks that are interested in giving feedback, um, being reviewers of protocols. If somebody wants to, you know, um, author a protocol, you know, that we don't have currently on the system, um, or if somebody just wants to, to, to use this at their hospital, um, feel free to reach out to me and, um, and we'll go from there. Dr. Finkler, thank you uh, so much. And, you know, it's one of those things where we are now all students more than ever before. You know, we thought when we went through medical school and residency that we were uh, you know, on the smooth path at that point, but the evolution of technology and the advancements in medicine and the evolution of medicine have put us more on our toes than ever before is when it, com- when it comes to um, evidence and being on the cutting edge of medical practice. And now being on that cutting edge, we have to be constantly vigilant for those, uh, those little changes and tweaks that are going to happen uh, frequently as more evidence comes out and you know, you're going to see tools like this and the growth of uh, evidence care um, as opportunities and ways to stay on that cutting edge of medical practice as opposed to the days gone by where you were 10, 15, 20 years behind the current evidence. And, um, you know, we still fight that when it comes to educating from people from books and yet medical practice in the actual setting is well past those books. And so it's a great resource taking advantage of our modern technologies, uh, the internet-based um, the clinical decision support, and eventually part of our EHR support as well. So uh, Dr. Brian Fingler from, uh, from Evidence Care. And as for me, feel free to contact me at youreverydaymedicine@gmail.com. youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com. I welcome your comments, suggestions, questions if I can answer them. If not, I will refer you to somebody else that theoretically can and if not they can probably refer you else to somebody else but we will keep referring you until somebody eventually gives you the answer and until next time thank you for joining us i'm dr ryan stanton and this has been some asap frontline